Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, October 18th. It's time for another episode of the Power Hour. We've got the team here from Pittsburgh Power. We'll hear from them, and then we'll get to your calls and questions. If you have anything maintenance-related, pick up the phone and join us. Phone lines are open right now. Calls are already starting to come in, so jump in. 855-950-3835. Anything maintenance-related today, fuel mileage, maintenance, performance, upgrades, modifications, troubleshooting, emissions, electronics, oil samples, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and join us. Let's uh, let's get started today. Bruce, looks like you're up first. Welcome back. Was it me, Bruce? It, it is you, Bruce. Okay. I'm mobile today, so we're going down the interstate. Hey, All hey, right. Hey, Bruce, uh, real, real quick, before yeah. you get started, I know you're going to be interested in this. You and I have been talking about sleep, I think, since we've known each other. Um, we've both struggled with it. We've both tried all kinds of things. They work for a while, then they stop working. Um, I have been researching this pretty hard. I came up with one area that should help. I've tried it in the past. I've never been able to figure it out. So we brought in the expert. Um, there's a group of nutrients, I guess they call adaptogens. They're, they're not vitamins or minerals. They're these other components of food. We call them adaptogens because they're, they're pretty interesting. If, if something in your body is too high, they'll lower it. But if it's too low, they'll raise it. That, that's how it, and they can kind of target the problem and solve them when you use them right. The other thing about them that's interesting is there's no limit that's too much. Like there's no danger to these things. There's no, never any toxicity, no matter how much you take of it, your body only uses what it needs. They're fairly complicated. I've tried to figure them out before. Um, they come from all kinds of things. Mushrooms, a lot of the, um, not, not like the mushrooms we cook with, but other mushrooms um, have adaptogens, plants. Uh, but I, there's not a lot of good information anywhere. Until just recently. And then one of the companies we actually work with, we carry their mushroom coffee and their mushroom chocolate. Um, she wrote a book and I read the book. It's excellent. But then I went one step further. I'm working directly with her to try to figure out my sleep issues using adaptogens and other herbs. And she's even got some other things she's thrown in there. Um, so it's, it's, pretty interesting. We're actually recording. So when, when she's working with me, we record it. So it's on the app. Those shows are on the app. So you can listen to them as we go. We have another one coming up in a week or two, another follow-up. Here's the interesting thing. Um, I've been at this three weeks now, I think. And in the beginning, the first two weeks, I didn't even use any adaptogens. She had me doing a couple other things for the first two weeks. Then we added the adaptogens. Um, my sleep score has improved by almost 30 points already. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Send so, me whatever you have. I will. I'll I take will. it. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, though. 
this isn't this isn't like whatever I do is going to work for somebody else. We have to look at each individual and figure out which adaptogen because there's like I think there's like 26 of them or I forget how many there are. And they can do, some of them, some adaptogens are really targeted towards your immune system. Other adaptogens are targeted towards stress, which those are the ones that usually address sleep. So it's really kind of a custom, you know, each individual, you're going to have to look at each individual. But what I'll do is um, when I'm all done with mine, we'll either work with you directly or we'll put you in touch with somebody that can. Absolutely. I'd appreciate it. All right. I mean, I've, I've been following this just when you wake up for the first time, it seems like the body has no melatonin in it. It seems like you get that one big shot of melatonin and it puts you to sleep. If you doze off a couple of times watching television, now you're in trouble. So you have to catch it on the first nod and go to bed. But once you wake up, it's like the body is ready to go, especially especially if it's had four hours of sleep. Yeah. And you and I are pretty similar. You know, some people have a really hard tr- time falling asleep. I usually don't have a problem falling asleep. It's that I'll wake up in sometimes just, to, sometimes I wake up in 20 minutes and I feel like I'm wide awake again. Other times I might get two or three hours and then wake up and feel. So that that's my problem. So, and that's the other thing about sleep. Everybody's really different. Some people it is melatonin. Most people it's not. Melatonin is usually not the problem. Cortisol can be a problem for people who are overstressed. Um, histamines can be a problem for some people. If you, you know how, um, oh shoot, what's the... Uh, there's an antihistamine that people take for allergies. I just drew a blank on it. Little pink pill. Really? The What's that? The terazine? No. The terazine. I'll think of it here in a minute. Um, if you can take that and it helps you fall asleep, your problem is is you probably have too many histamines because that's what it is. It's an antihistamine, which histamines can cause allergies. Histamines also kind of rev up your nervous system. So if you can lower uh, Benadryl, thank you, Aaron. Aaron just sent me a text. Benadryl. People will take Benadryl to go to sleep, and it works for most people. That's lowering histamines. So we have to figure out what the sleep problem is. There's so many of them. For some people, it's just sleep hygiene. You know, the room's too hot. There's too much light. There are too many distractions, too much noise. So the, the problem with sleep is it can just be all over the board. But that's our focus um, until we come up with a program where we can say, whatever your sleep problem is, we'll show you how to fix it. That's awesome. There's a lot of people. As you get older, it's more prevalent. Yeah. And, and our lifestyle gets worse and worse all the time. We're surrounded by electronics and screens and distractions and, you know, our lifestyle's a a big Mm -hmm. problem too. So that's our, uh, that's our big project right now. Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful project. I have lots of clients for you. Good. Good. All right. What's on your mind today? I just want to say we still get a lot of big cam calls. It's incredible how many people are redoing big cams right now. 
And I want to say in the late 70s through the mid-80s, until the four and a quarter B cat became popular, Cummins had 74% of the new truck sales. Wow. All were big cams. Wow. That's yep. a lot. You know what, though? Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, 70. that's kind of about the time I was getting into the industry. By far, Cummins was the most common engine, no doubt. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, right and then, I, De- Detroit really wasn't really a player yet because the old Detroit engines, that company had gone out of business and Penske had just bought it and was bringing out the Series 60. Uh, so really, you know, Cummins and Cat were about the only two engines unless you had a Mac or something like that or an international, they had some of their own yeah. engines. Yeah. And keep in mind, the 60 Series, the 60 series was invented by a Cummins engineer, but Cummins was very happy. Upper management was very happy with the N14. So then he basically went with John Deere with it, and then Penske took it from John Deere. Okay. Yeah. So the other thing I just wanted to say is just some old information. Uh, We haven't talked about torsional dampers for a while. And they're, they're due every half a million miles, the torsional damper in the front of the crank. They create lots of problems. And the people that redo drive shafts will tell you you should have your drive shaft checked every half, half a million miles. Uh, my, my stance on a drive shaft is when, once you need a clutch, if you've gone seven or 800,000 miles, the, the drive shaft is on the floor, take it to a good shop and get it balanced, straightened. And just rebuild it at 800000 or whenever you need the clutch. And at that time, if money allows it, I would take the transmission to a good transmission shop and say, put new seals and gaskets and bearings and look at the gears. Because there is 800000 on it. If you do the transmission, that is a little premature. However, it's going to carry you then up to a million and a half plus miles. Yeah, good point. No doubt. You know, when it comes to preventative maintenance, you know, well, we're never going to be perfect on when we do it. Or, But as long as you can fit it into your budget, like you said, if the money's there and we're not way too early, it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's much better to do it a little early sure than does. to break down on the road. Yeah. Some people used to say to me, I don't change a part until it breaks. Oh, that's... That's bad. Yeah, you know, on your personal vehicle, go ahead. Who cares? On the thing you use to make money, and when it breaks, you may be 2,000 miles away from home. Yeah, probably not a good way to do it. We used to get calls Friday afternoon. Can you overnight me a muffler? Mine just fell off. Oh, wait a second. (laughs) Mufflers just don't fall off. No, they don't. You walk around that truck at least once a day, you should be looking at that muffler. Yeah. That's that's all I have. All right. Let's... uh... But I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to hear about the sleep. I mean, I am thrilled. If you could get me eight hours, boy, I'd feel like I'm 35. Hey, Bruce, you know what I'm really shooting for? I don't know. We'll see. I don't. I doubt that I'll sleep eight hours. I can't remember the last time I slept eight hours. It's been years. 
I'm really looking for six or six and a half of good quality sleep. I'd be really happy with that. Mm. I, Best I, sleep I ever had was in a bunk at 600 Kenworth going down a highway. Oh, I know. Yeah, that, that is good that's sleep. Six, that's of my life. Yeah. You know what, though? I, it, I almost was going to put a bunk. I was going to buy a Kenworth VIT with a button and tuck interior and I was going to buy a bunk and put it in my basement because, you know, basement's nice and cool. And that's where I was going to sleep. There you go. Hey, I really, if we wanted to sleep the best, the most consistent, we would do something like that. We would have a sleep pod where you controlled, you know, the light, the temperature, the sound, uh, everything. That that would be ideal. Uh, Probably not practical for a lot of people, but that's basically what you're talking about. Build yourself a little sleep pod. Yeah. All right. right. Let's uh, okay. let's find out what's on Pete's mind. Pete, welcome. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing today? Good. What's on your mind? So I had a customer call with a 12-7 Detroit with a come-and-go issue. I wanted to send the ECM in to see if we could fix it. And the problem was the truck would idle high just randomly um, when it was idling. Um, or even if he's on cruise, sometimes it would pick up speed. Like someone's giving it throttle wow. pedal. And we could send the ECM in to get looked at. And I said, well, we could check the ECM. The problem is probably a waste of time because it's a come and go problem. So if you take the ECM off and the truck's fine, we're going to test everything. It's going to be fine. And it's one of those cases where the, the truck needs to be here to check a problem like that. And it has to be doing it. And it wasn't doing it on a regular basis enough that, he, you know, he'd say, okay, it does it every morning. Oh, we yeah. should be able to find it. Right. Because at that point we plug the laptop in and, and start looking at stuff. Is there, you know, something telling the throttle to speed up or what's going on? But, um, you know, besides the electrical issues, it could also be a fuel-related issue. The fuel system could be sucking air. So I'm going to have him check that himself. Um, check for uh, the sight glass for air bubbles. Check fuel pressure, fuel restriction. Even if it's that, that's not it. At least we're going to roll that out as being a problem. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to look at that anymore. And then another suggestion I had for him is just try to find a loaner ECM. Yeah. If you put another ECM on and it goes away, then it's a safe bet. I got to bite the bullet and buy an ECM. If it doesn't, we're not going to have two ECMs with the same problem. Correct. So, you know, it's Chuck related, which more than likely it is. But with a problem like that, he's probably going to have to wait until it gets worse before someone can find it. Has to do it at the shop for someone to be able to find the problem. Right. Right. Yeah. That, I, I don't, I don't think I've heard that one before. That one's, uh, that one's kind of interesting. You know, the other thing we, we talk about troubleshooting and that's what you were talking about here. Swapping out an ECM is a pretty easy thing to do and it can eliminate a lot of things pretty quickly. Um, the other thing is when we have these random intermittent problems, which are the worst to try to figure out, you just keep looking for any kind of a pattern, 
anything at all, like you said, is does it happen in the morning? Does it happen on cold days? Does it happen when it rains? Does it happen when I'm at a different altitude driving? Does it happen after I do this? Just keep looking for a pattern. Many times it's that one thing we can find if we look hard enough that'll point us in the right direction. And that's what I, I had asked him. Do you notice if it does it more with low fuel versus a full tank? And he, he didn't know, but he's going to pay attention to that. Uh, it, right. Uh, we had an go. issue years years ago with a cold weather problem that we couldn't. It seemed like when he was here, the weather was warm, like we had a mild day. So we took the ECM off at night, threw it in a freezer in the morning, put it on, fired the truck up, and it acted up. Ah, yeah. So we right. knew that the ECM had issue that when it got cold, something you know, contracted right. and caused an issue. Yeah. So, you know, there's this way you can, you know, go about things, heating stuff up, or, you know, we have an issue that there's a code that seems to happen when it's raining. Um, we'll spray the um, wiring harness down with the garden hose yeah. and see if something acts up and kind of isolate which wiring harness you were spraying when that happened. Yeah, so the the one troubleshooting step that the driver can really help with is just keep looking for that pattern. Just keep trying to figure out what what is the common thing every time this happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more information we get, the better chance we have of finding the problem. Exactly. Sooner, too. You know, the, the big problem with yes. troubleshooting is if the longer it takes, the more expensive it gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just did the garden hose just recently. That works. That works really well because it was a it was an after-treatment issue. And, you know, that wiring harness runs all the way from the driver's side of the engine all the way down underneath. So I assumed it had a wiring problem sort of underneath where the water would get to, but it was actually on the driver's side right behind the engine. Huh. But uh, you can kind of pinpoint it better with a garden hose versus just spraying everything down. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah good troubleshooting. It's a rare thing these days. And it takes time. It does. It does. And, right. you know, it takes time. troubleshooting is one of those things that even if you sat down and you tried to teach them everything you knew about it, it's, it most of it comes from experience. It's just you see mm-hmm. enough patterns over and over and over that you think, oh, yep, I remember one just like that. Here's what it was. So it, it's a lot of just experience sometimes. And you have to be able to think. Think before you do. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. There's a, there's a good book I could recommend. We talked about it once before. It's called How to Find a Wolf in Siberia. Really interesting book. It's, it's not. It's even, going around here. Is it? Oh, good. Because I, yeah, I read it, and then I gave it to Anthony, and Anthony read it, and I think Bill has it now. Bill has it now. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, it's it's ninety six pages. Yeah, that's right. It's not a big book. It's not complicated. Yeah. It's actually really simple. It it you know it's not going to give you a lot of technical stuff. That's was that isn't what it's about. This is how to troubleshoot anything. In fact, that's the subtitle. How to troubleshoot practically anything. Yeah. So it's just kind of the stuff we're talking about here, but in a really organized format. You read this book, you're going to be a better yeah. troubleshooter. For sure. Yeah, good stuff. All right, so Pete, uh, what else you got? 
that's it for me for today. All right. Leroy, you've already jumped in. What's in your mind today? Yeah, I tend to do that. That's <laughs> good, though. I um, like that. Yeah. So speaking of troubleshooting and uh, all the stuff we've been talking about, um, I've hey, been working me, with Jordan. Let me jump uh, in real quick. Because you did jump in there, and you are kind I of yeah, you are kind of the uh, the one we talk about troubleshooting a lot. Because if we go back to mechanical stuff, we go back to mechanical trucks, talking about big cams and the possibilities of what went wrong. There just aren't that many, you know. When you had a problem on a purely mechanical vehicle. There just aren't that many things that can go wrong, and you usually have a visual clue. You can usually look around and find the problem with your eyeballs a lot of times. Once we went to electronics and computers and sensors, and every year we get more and more of them, this is where troubleshooting becomes really complicated. Yeah, it can. Um, I don't know, though. I would have to say, I don't know about what you think, Pete, but... Um, I feel like mechanical troubleshooting can also be difficult because like there's nothing even giving you a hint. You know what I mean? Like, like I've been trying to tune in the car brakes on JR's motorcycle and it's like tuning that thing's like black magic. It's like you have this emulsion tube, you take the emulsion tube out and then you have to like solder some of the holes, depending on how far up the holes are on the tube, you have to solder some of them shut and then you have to drill holes in other places and do this and do that. I'm just like, nowadays you just type the number in, you know, maybe it's just what you have more experience with because to me, the mechanical troubleshooting seems pretty straightforward. I look at all the electronic troubleshooting and think that's black magic. I, I used to think alignments were black magic because I didn't understand them. I didn't know what the hell they were doing under there to align something. Once I figured it out, it was really simple, but, just the sheer number of possibilities is what I was talking about. There's just only yeah, when, when a mechanical component breaks, there's only so many things it could be. But when you, how many sensors do we have on trucks now? Electronic sensors. Yeah. And there's, a lot, there's a lot more actuators and motors and things now. Like, you know, the turbocharger yeah. before troubleshoot that was pretty straightforward. Now you have, the actuator part of it, then you have the turbo part, the moving vein piece. Like, there's a lot that and, goes on with it. And then all we, the electronics that left. control all of that stuff. You get a, a, you have a half of a volt right. drop somewhere, and all of a sudden you have a problem. Yeah, we have an M11 in the shop which throws codes, and the problem is mechanical though. And it came in needed a turbo, pretty cut and dry. Put a turbo on there. Uh, and this is a truck someone's trying to sell. And they don't know the history on it. And it was okay for a little bit. Bring it back. Another code. Pull the turbo off. Something went through it again. Exhaust high. Doesn't have a miss. Doesn't smoke. Uh, we did an unusual test. We took a yellow T-shirt, tied it to the back of a the turbo, and fired it up to see what was coming out of there. And there's metal coming out of there. Hmm. Un Which is it's, what's damaging. It, it's the I'm yellow T-shirt test. Yeah. Yeah, I know it, that It one. seemed a little primitive, but it, so um, you know, got the EGR valve. It, it's a lot of 
soot in there, but there is metal. I mean, it will catch a magnet. Oh, yeah. So something in the cylinder head. It's not a valve. It's not a valve seed. It doesn't misfire. It doesn't pop. Uh, my, my guess is the casting of a head starting to come apart. And this was something that sat for a while. So no one seems to know much about it. But that's another wrinkle hey, into hey, a mechanic engine with a code. I just had an idea. You might be able to figure that out. I know this metal didn't come from an oil sample, but when we're oil sampling and we have a problem with a particular metal, um, you know, we know that if it's iron, it's probably going to be upper cylinder. If it's lead and copper, it's going to be bearings. If it's aluminum, it's more likely to be here. But I have had cases where we have a high metal. We can't really figure out where it is. We're in kind of the right area, but we don't know which part. There is another test the lab will do. They go in and look closer at the metal itself, and a lot of times they can identify the exact part. Wasn't aware of that. We should we should take the debris, put it in a thing of oil, and then send it out. <laughs> <laughs> you might just want to call Polaris and ask them, would you be able to do that with metal we have coming out of the exhaust stream? I can do that. It's a good idea. Hey. Pete, how did you mount the T-shirt on the turbo? So Brian was the one that, that did it. It was, it was his, his idea. And basically, he hose clamped it on there. So he tied up the one end the, um, where the sleeves and the head would go through. And the other end, he just hose clamped onto the turbo. And we fired up in his wow. shop and ran it for a little bit, rubbed the engine uh, a few times. It ran for a couple minutes. And then took the T-shirt off and opened it up, and there was debris in there. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. It was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, he didn't take a brand new T-shirt, did he? It was. He take a brand new T-shirt and fire T-shirt off the shelf. Yeah, I'll be all the customer. <laughs> hey, well, I was just going to say, you should just give that T-shirt to the customer and say, here's how we solved your problem. Now you can have the T-shirt. Little consolation. That's right. By the way, you need a yeah. <laughs> you know, mix things better. T-shirt, new engine. You'll wipe your tears with it. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, Leroy, I asked you what you was what was on your mind, and then I interrupted you. So, go ahead. I know. So, yeah, we were talking about all this troubleshooting and whatnot. Uh, I've been working with Jordan, and we've been adding. We added a whole section of the website called Customer Resources. And under there, we have charts for diagnostic fault code. So, you know, if somebody says, my dash says, <clears throat> I have fault code 245-3. You can go on our website now, pull up the chart and see what the fault code's for. Okay. We also have manuals on there, you know, for like engineering bulletins, how things work, service manuals. We have schematic, we're putting schematics on there. Mostly for Detroit right now. We're still working on Cummins and Cat on that one. Yeah, but uh, we're adding a whole section of stuff because the, the Internet's a big place full of great resources, but we're trying to put it all in one place. So. <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? Every time I would put out something like a book or a course or something I created, and of course we charge for it, and somebody would say, why would you spend that money? All of that information is on the Internet. And I'd say, you're right, it is. Try to figure out what you're supposed to do with it. 
because yeah. not only not only is all the correct information on the internet about how to do something, there's a whole lot more bullshit about how to do something that isn't correct. So how oh, do you yeah. know what's what? Oh yeah. Oh well, well these manuals are right from Detroit or yeah, Cummins exactly. or Cat. So. Right. And well, and what you've done is is put all these resources in one place. You could spend all day trying to find that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I have stuff from years of just finding things on the internet, and right. it's just saved on my hard drive. And I'm like, we should put this in a place where other people can get, you know, this kind of stuff. So, Excellent. Good. Good. Well, and the next thing is a video how to actually use yeah. those resources. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. What else you got? But, uh, yeah, I've been working on that. Finally finished up the uh, select, uh, select Plus conversion. Um, that was a bit, it took a little bit longer than I think it should have, but uh, we got it done and it works perfect. So good. Um, wasn't all that hard it, to turn it over. Everyone it, said it was going to be pretty bad and I thought it was pretty. So explain pretty, what that is. So I, I don't know this whole history. Pete will have to help me, but the select came out first right after, I guess there was some sort of N14 with the, I don't know, what, what, what did they call that? It was an N14, but it had a little bit of electronics on it. Then the Select came out. They had a pace system. Yeah. It was just a electronic uh, governor fuel pump. There was no throttle language. Right. So the Select is like a little bit better than that. Not much better, but a little bit better. <laughs> and then you had the Select Plus, which was even just a little bit better than that one. But I mean, anyway, so you had to, we had to convert the old electronics to the new electronics which just was a matter of just kind of repinning a couple of connectors and swapping some wires around, doing a little reprogramming. And uh, we made a lot of the stuff that he already had there work. I ended up only running two wires into the cab to redo everything. Wow. So I was able to repin things and, you know, not make an entire mess of it. It was pretty well stocked. So oh, Nice. Well, here, here's what it was, because I took the initial phone call. He had to put had his engine rebuilt and he needed another block. And I think he had a select plus and they put a select in it or vice versa. And then they started mismatching parts with select and select plus. Oh boy. So like 94, 95 to early 98 is select mid 98 and newer is select plus. And they had a, a menagerie of parts from both engines and they don't mix. But yet the the truck ran, and somebody programmed it. It wouldn't get any fuel mileage and didn't run properly. Yep. So, yeah. And this is one. He took it to a, one of our remote tunes, or remote tuners, and we were able to tune it. But they weren't happy with how it ran. And then, whenever his son called me and we started talking, we found out that it's the hodgepodge of parts. So then they brought it in. Got it. All right. Anybody have anything else? That's all I had. All right. I think we're going to get to the calls then. Let's go to Ohio. Peter, welcome to the program. Hey, Peter, before you jump in there, um, says here your phone at least is in Worcester. Is that where you live? Peter? Peter? 
Um, yes, I'm actually by Seville. Oh, yeah. Okay, so when I first started driving, um, P&D work, that was my area. Our terminal was in Richfield. I'd start in Medina, work my way down to Worcester. I loved it down there. Worcester Brush was my big account, Rubbermaid. Um, for a while, several members of my family had trucks with Worcester Motorways. Very familiar with that whole area. Yep. What's on your oh, mind yeah, today? I know everything you're talking about. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I had a big problem. Saturday, I was over in Connecticut. Truck was shut off for a 10-hour break. I fired it up, let it warm up while I went in to grab coffee and stuff. Pulled around to the fuel island, didn't shut it off, put 75 gallons of fuel in. Took off driving about 40 minutes into my trip, deadheading with an empty 53-foot dry van. The truck backfired and blew both of the stacks off the truck. You know, the curved tops of the stacks. Wow. It's a 12-7 Detroit. Um, year? I'm pretty sure it's a D-Deck 4. What year is it? um, It's a 2016 Coronado. Is that a glider? So it's a glider. Yes. Yes. Yeah, pre-emissions. It's not a Fitzgerald. It was a Detroit um, powered glider. So it came from a freight liner with the engine already installed. And then they completed it down in Texas, down at uh, really Texarkana, the Lone Star, put the I, truck together. I didn't know they did that. So Freightliner themselves actually I, I built was, this truck, huh? Um, yeah, I'm sure oh. it was a Detroit factory remanned engine installed at the deep at the Freightliner assembly, huh? Now, Kevin, it comes yeah. minus minus transmission and minus rears. Really? So it has to have two major components off, yeah. It's called a oh. power kit, not a glider kit. Uh, that, okay. Now that makes sense. Okay, because that is the rule, two of the three major components. I've never heard of one where the component they put in was the engine, but calling it a power kit makes sense. All right, interesting. I learned something today. So... So back in, uh, I think it was April, the head gasket went on that original engine. And with the parts shortage and everything, nobody could find me a rebuild kit. There was some damage on the cam and there was no cams available. So I ended up having to buy an engine. So I, I bought a, a basically a factory remand engine and swapped, had the engine swapped out at the Detroit dealer. Now the ECM, I had the truck to Pittsburgh power. I had their muffler, the program. Um, so I kept the ECM from the original engine and had them install it on the new engine. Now, when I bought the engine, you know, we matched, um, engine serial numbers and everything, and the, they said that it would work fine. And the truck was running fine. Um, and then I developed an issue where it would 
scrappy, hard to start, almost like it was losing its prime. And I have a fast fuel system on the truck, so I'm kind of shaking my head at that, you know, why I'm having so much trouble getting the truck to start. You know, crank and crank won't start. And I'm sure it's a fuel issue because if I take and use a little starter fluid, it'll fire right up. And Saturday morning, I did, I did, I did not use any starter fluid Saturday morning. Um, in fact, the, the longer the truck sits, a lot of times the easier it is to start. Like I'm home. I just took a, what, three days off, came out to the truck and it fired right up. But if I pull into a customer, shut it off while they unload or load me for an hour or two, a lot of times I have an even harder time starting it then. But it's always cranking and not starting. Like right, so let's think, fuel. let's think about this. The cam gear on that Detroit, Pete and Leroy, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there three bolts that get tightened up that position the cam and they have that being variable because of uh, material being shaved off a block and shaved off a head and to backfire fuel has to be getting past the exhaust valve and then igniting. I wonder if this thing has slipped into a drastically retarded mode because engines like to start in the retarded mode, and after about three seconds, they want to be advanced. Oh, so, um, I'm just Bruce. Bruce, one second. I do have one engine code, and according to the dashboard, it's saying air inlet temperature. So, could it be that the the truck's not getting the proper inlet? air temperature and it's thinking it's cold yeah. and the, the programming's retarding it. So it doesn't it retard based on um, intake air temp. It'll only advance it if it's cold. Oh, you're right. And it depends on what your sensor's reading. If it, if it's like, it has a circuit code and it's reading like, like, you know, zero or 10 degrees, then it'll advance the timing. But if it's reading like, you know, uh, 70 or 80 or something like that. It's not going to add any timing. But the the truck was running perfectly fine. Before it backfired, I was getting almost eight miles per gallon. And after it backfired, it was almost like it went into a limp mode. It was smoking real bad. There was zero pedal. And it was like, I didn't want to lift off the pedal because I was, on Interstate 84 in Connecticut and needed to get off the road. So I went like around the corner, maybe quarter mile or less to a wide spot. I stopped. The engine never shut off. I left it idling, got out of the truck to look and see, because the first thing I thought was I blew a turbo. And it it basically, by the time I got out of the truck, it had already cleared up. It wasn't smoking. Like I said, both of the turnout tips on the stacks are gone. You know, it blew it off and actually mushroomed part of the pipe that's left. You know, so it was an actual explosion. Wow. Took them off. And uh, 
and the, the truck idled normally, I went ahead and tried to take off, you know, to get to a, off the interstate completely to a better place. And the truck started running fine and it ran fine. So I drove it all the way back to Ohio getting, you know, almost eight miles per gallon. So I don't think it's like you were starting to say where it's uh, mechanically retarded and, you know, I don't see how it could get such good fuel mileage if there was that type of problem. I agree. Leroy, what about the, uh, cam or crank positioning sensor? Um, if they're out just a little bit, it will throw a check engine light for either too many, uh, cam pulses or not enough or misaligned. So it backfired once and hasn't ran right since, or just has done. No, it once. backfired once, you know, went into like a limp mode. I don't know. Does it have like a knock detector or something where, you know, it's like, uh Oh, engines coming apart and it shut you know, detuned, but it was like backfired. It stumbled like, like basically I didn't take my foot off the accelerator, you know, cause I wanted to keep whatever momentum I had to get off the, out of the travel lanes. After I took my foot off the accelerator, it seemed to clear up. The only reason a, the only reason a 60 series, DDEC three or four will pull fuel is smoke control mode. Um, if it doesn't have enough boost, it'll pull it. If you have like basic engine protections turned on, like oil pressure, coolant temp, things like that. Um, but pretty much other than like those four or five reasons, it won't pull fuel for any reason. There's no D rates or anything like the new engines have. There's no right. exhaust temp D rates, no nothing. So unless it's in engine protection or there's not enough boost, it will not pull fuel. Yeah, so the red light, the re- the shutdown light never came on. It, none of that. Um, one other thing, I would, I had just come through a construction zone, like fifty-five miles per hour. So I was off the accelerator, coasting, and then it was like as I tried to put power back in is when it happened. Didn't you have a phone call a month or two ago? Was someone talking about an issue with the? the 60 series Detroit when you uh, coast and then get back on the pedal. And he said that it was a stumble. And then like, if you didn't notice it and you kept in it, it would backfire. I'm wondering if I had that issue, I didn't notice it was happening and it actually went all the way to the backfire. Maybe you had that sort of issue uh, where when you initially got back in the throttle, it pulled all the timing out of it. And maybe that combined with an injector that's leaking a little bit, maybe the cylinder loaded up with a bunch of fuel and went off. It's hard to say, but, um, so we had a, um, uh, ECM. It was a, uh, bus for West Virginia university that had a fuel leak near the ECM, which sprayed the ECM with fuel, which ended up filling the ECM with fuel. Oh, yeah, and that it one. would backfire. It would, Jake's would come on. I wonder if you're getting moisture or something in the ECM. Was it raining when this occurred? Or had you gone no, through a rainstorm no, or anything? No, it wasn't. But now that you mentioned that, after they put the new engine in, one of the fuel line fittings right above the ECM was dripping. But 
I replaced oh. that fuel line, and we're talking that was, what, almost three months ago? I mean, mm. do you think it would affect it that much longer? You know, because it's not, it's not like there's there's fuel or anything dripping on it right now. Right. And in this case on that bus, the line was actually spraying fuel at it. You know, it wasn't yeah. just dripping on it. Now, you know, something you can do that's relatively simple is um, all the plugins for your ECM, unplug them, make sure they're not corroded, make sure they're not wet with oil or that, moisture. The, the ECM has four screws and you can pop the lid off of the screwdriver and just look inside, just to see if it's full of anything, oil, fuel. Corrosion. Yeah. Anything like that. I mean, it's and then, fairly easy to do. It wouldn't cost you any. Yeah, and then just scrape it off and put a little RTV and put the lid back on. Okay, so you just put the gasket sealing on it and, and pop it back yeah. closed. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You'll you'll see what's going on once you got it opened up. Uh, I have another thought. That restrictor valve on the return line. What is Pete? Is that a hundred and ten thousandths opening? It's. I was thinking one hundred and four, but yeah, it's it's very tiny. It's very tiny. What happens if if that is clogged and there's excessive back pressure on the return side, and it's allowing the injectors to overfuel? I don't know. No. I'm wondering if it'd be like the NTCs where when we can't return fuel, we simply have a high idle or the return to idle hangs up would be my thought on that. Well, it's not the computer, doing either of those. Yeah, the computer is going to compensate for that, though, the ECM. But I would pull that fitting off the, that, is that a block or is it a fitting, Pete? It's a fitting in the head. Yeah, and I'd pull that off and make sure that's now, open. About that fitting, is there only one fitting for the 12.7, or is there different ones? I think there's just one. That's what I thought, too. Because uh, that was another thing. I, You know, somebody had mentioned that fitting, and I was wondering if switching from one engine to another, could it be that that restrictor wasn't matching the rest of the fuel system? Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure there's only one. All right. So, so we kind of think more than likely it is a leaky injector because of the two issues, well, the backfire and the fact that it's losing prime. Well, I mean, I that also, could be. You, you still want to pull that cover off that ECM and look inside because uh, that ECM, if it, is firing an injector at the wrong time, then that would cause that problem too. Okay. I will. And, and I'll just say, like, hang up. what we were talking about earlier that the 60 series doesn't really derate for much. If it feels like you're losing power, it's not the ECM derating you. You most likely have just a fueling issue, whether that's so an like injector or fuel pump or something. Yeah. Something along those lines because the 60 series doesn't derate. So. All right. Um, I will look into that. Of course, I checked with you guys right away Monday morning, and <laughs> you guys are pretty booked out. So I'm gonna yeah, I think so. Have to, yeah, I 
like they were talking like December, middle of December. Um, so hey, right. gonna, can, we get, can we get them into engineering sooner? Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as like putting them on the dyno and, you know, trying to find the problem, we could probably do that. But as far as like if the shop has to fix anything or whatnot, then, you know, that's well, a different schedule what we have. We could take ECM apart and look at that, put it on a dyno, and we could have one of the mechanics pull the restrictor off the back. That, that's only a few-minute job, so try to get yeah. him in soon. Yeah, let us know. All, All right. right. Um, you want me to hang up and call you guys? Yep. Yeah, yeah hang call, up and, uh, call Eric. Call, or I would call Leroy right after the show. All right. Leroy, you can look at your schedule. Okay. Yeah, that's no problem. All right. Sounds like we got a plan. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. I'll call as soon as the show ends. You're welcome. All right. Okay. Let's head off to... That was a real, <laughs> that's a real stomper there, buddy. That's a tough one. That's, uh, that's the... Uh, yeah. The troubleshooting World Series there. Yeah, we're we're going to want to. We had to think on that. Yeah, we're definitely going to want a follow up report on this one when you figure it out. <laughs> All right, let's go to Indiana. Ed, welcome to the program. Hey guys, how you all doing this morning? Good. What's on your mind? Everybody good. I hope. I, I have lucked into, uh, in kind of my own opinion, a 1987 International 9670 cab over with a 444 Cummins in it. And I did a little research. I know a lot of people said they're worthless boat anchors, but I've talked to a lot of people that have actually had them and run them and said, if you can get that step timing right and fix the low flow cooling issue, that they were pretty good engines. So I was wondering what your guys' opinions were on that 444. Well, number one, is it a night? <laughs> yeah. Is it an 87? Yes. Okay, so Pete, that's probably an 821 CPL. It, it could be. You know if it's a 5-bolt valve cover or a 7-bolt valve cover. It's the easiest way to determine which um, series of 444s it is. I do not. I've had it all summer, but I've just kind of been hanging on to it to start working on it this winter, and I really haven't dug into it yet and uh, started looking it over or anything, so I'm not real sure about that. Okay. The, um, the 821 was the very first one, and it's a good engine. It just doesn't make as much power as the 910, 1210, 1211, and 1280 CPLs. And those are the ones with the seven. Those are phenomenal engines. They're great. My brother ran his for 1.3 million miles at 700 horsepower. Really? And, yeah, we, we have no complaints with 444s. The people that complain about a 444, they're just ignorant, and they don't understand the step timing. Okay. Step timing is really trouble-free. Um, the, the only issue this ha engine has is the low flow cooling which we can correct we can convert it to full flow but as far as the, the timing the stc box it is truly trouble free it just is not an issue <laughs> and if you're not right and if you're not going to run a lot of mountains and the low flow is letting you run too hot just put the auxiliary coolant tank on that we've talked about okay 
Uh, I do run the Midwest, so uh, I don't really run mountains. I'm just pretty much central Midwest and south. Uh, so I'm not too worried about the low flow cooling. I have heard that you can uh, swap that out, but I didn't know what all that took to do that. Uh, and I'm going to, I want to use it and try to make a little money with it, but obviously being a mechanical engine, I know the fuel mileage is going to not be that great. And I'm just going to kind of use it as a here and there spare kind of truck. So I don't, uh, I don't need a, you know, a, I don't need a 800 horsepower and are not looking to do anything crazy with it. But, uh, I was going to ask if you, if you're, uh, if you're running the Midwest and it's set up properly, you can do six and a half to seven out of that. Really? Okay. That'd be great. I'd be real impressed with that. Uh, I'm used to driving mechanic or, uh, uh, computerized engines, mostly these N14s. I've got three of those now. I'm not too up on driving a mechanical engine, an older one like that. So what kind of RPM should I be looking at as my shift points and my cruise points on a 444? 1,700 to 2,200. Okay. So, so you want to cruise at 17, 17, 50, 1,800. Okay. All right. And then run it up to 2,200 when I shift. Well, you don't have to take it that high, but if you need to, you can. Okay. doesn't hurt it. When we drag race or pull sleds with big cams, we take them to 3,500 RPM. That's when the valve okay. starts to float. The 22, 24, 2,500 does not hurt these engines. Okay. Great. Uh, I had a question, too, on rear end gears. It has a 13-speed Eaton in it. I'm not sure the model number on the, on the transmission either. But I do want to put a newer cutoff on it just because the back end's pretty rusted. Uh, what would be a good rear end gear that I would be looking to put in there? And I run 60, 65 miles an hour max. I'm not looking to go any faster than that. If you want to run in direct, which will be 12th gear on that transmission, uh, it would be a 308. Now, okay. does it have tall rubber on it? Yes, it does have 22 or 24 fives. Yeah, that would be a 308 then to run in direct. Okay, what about if I did swap it to low pro 22.5? I'd have to do some calculations for that one. Okay. Bruce, I just I don't would, have that one in my head. Bruce, I would have to think that we're, you know, we don't change a ton when we go to a different tire size. If we're going to a smaller tire, I would think 293 maybe. I, I, two, six, that's what I, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, 279 would probably be too far. 293 is probably. Right. Okay. I agree with you, Kevin. I okay. think the calculator uh, would Are there too. any other... <laughs> also, you want to you you change and put our damper and balancer on it, and you want to put our gold fuel line kit on. And you should pull the injectors in the... Pull the fuel pump and the injectors and send them in and let uh, our Pat rework them for you. Okay. I did drive 150 miles home, and it seemed to run fine. And it does like to smoke when you first start it up, but once it warms up, it seems like most of the smoking goes away. Okay, there is a – I'm going to let Pete talk to you about the um, – what's it called, Pete? Oil viscosity sensor? But yeah, there's a viscosity sensor that most of these have, and it's bolted to the pan rail right below the loop pump. 
And what that does is when you fire the truck up, the loop pump thinks it doesn't have enough oil pressure, so it'll jack the pressure up pretty high. And it's not uncommon on a cold day to see 80 or 90 pounds of oil pressure. And the reason for that is that puts a lot of oil up to the tappets to advance the timing quickly so that it reduces smoke. Okay. What happens is uh, once you have oil pressure and you're below 50 pounds of fuel pressure, which you will be at an idle, the timing advances. And that's why they don't smoke like the older big cams did. Most of the trucks have them. Um, If it doesn't, uh, by putting one on will help eliminate some of that smoke during startup. Okay. Being this is an 821 CPL, I'll bet it doesn't have it. When you start it when it's cold, what's your oil pressure? Uh, I can't, I, I notice it takes a little bit longer than I'm used to for the oil pressure to build up, but I really can't tell you offhand what it does build up to when it does come in. But I, but watching the gauge when I first started it, I'm, I'm kind of looking at it like, come on, come on, come on. And then finally the oil pressure shows up. I'll bet Pete that doesn't have that oil viscosity sensor kit. And that's a pretty easy fix. Okay. Yeah. So that is something you can add on to it. Yes. Okay. I would love, uh, the first thing I want to do is pull an oil sample on this and see what it looks like, but I would love to just set up a time with, for you guys and just bring it up there and let you guys go through it and check it out and make all the adjustments and just get this thing running tip top as great as you can. And, and then I, I, I think I'd be pretty happy with it. You would be very happy with it. Call Eric at our shop and get on the schedule. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, I think that's about all I have is the question for questions on it for right now. All right. Thanks for the call. Hey, Bruce, awesome. Thank you. Bruce, I, I would venture to say you guys have to be one of the only shops in the country that knows what to do with a four, four, four. Yeah. Anytime you find mechanics that want to bad mop everything, they need to look at themselves. Instead of bad mouthing something, figure out what it takes to make it right. Yeah, you guys look. I, I was very critical of that engine way back then when it because I couldn't figure it out either. Obviously, very few people did. They didn't last long. How many years did they make that? From nineteen eighty-seven to ninety-two. Okay, pretty short run, really, for an engine. Also, step timing. Mechanical N14s, and even the KTAs um, ran a step timing injector. Um, they called it an HVT, which is hydraulic variable timing, but in essence, it was the same thing. Yeah. It, now, it's you, really a trouble. There's just not much to go wrong with. You know, Bruce, you, you guys have done this with a lot of engines over the years that everybody else thought were problems. And like you said, instead of complaining about it, figure out what you can do about it. You did the same thing with the bridge. Remember how much we used to complain about the that eight. thing? Yeah. Yeah. We fixed the bridge cat. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, there was a small cam CPL 217. It was a 290. Cummins engineering told me it was strictly a fleet engine. I'd never be able to do anything with it. Oh man. We make four hundreds <laughs> out of that. Running run dry axle dump trucks around Pittsburgh. We were getting 6.2 miles a gallon. Wow. Out of the VL217. Turned out to be a great engine for us. And then the 838 and the 840, that that was an 840 CPL in my Kenworth. 
Cummins told me the same thing. That was strictly a J.B. Hunt Schneider type engine. You won't be able to do anything with it because it was a high compression, retarded timing, and had a different injector cup on it. Uh, it had two thousands less travel to the injector than the standard big cam, and so we got together and uh, we all started working on it, and they became a phenomenal engine for us. We had a guy in Phoenix had a X cab over from J.B. Hunt. We kept giving it fuel, giving it fuel. He tried to break that 840, and he couldn't break it. Nice. All right. Boy, I so, just, I, and you saw how nice that one, that one in my Kenworth, how nice that ran, and that was a 350, and it was set at 500 horse. And all we did that, was reflow the pump, reflow the injectors, put the fast system on, a dual fuel line kit, and change the turbine housing. That was it. That for me was less the most than three thousand dollars worth of parts. Yeah, that for me was the most impressive mechanical engine I've ever driven. Yeah, yeah, it's a great engine. Yeah, so it really was instead of instead of people bad mopping things, find cures. There you go. All right, I just looked at the phones and we are slammed with calls. We better get to them. We're going to go to Kansas. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey guys, thanks for having me. How y'all doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Uh, well, first, uh, I, I wanted to uh, give an update on Catalyst. So I've been running Catalyst in my car. I've got an Audi A8, and I've been running it in that for about a year now. And when I first when I first got that car, I ran it for about 10,000 miles tracking fuel economy. And uh, since I started running the Catalyst, uh, in about nine months of running the catalyst, my fuel economy on the highway came up eight miles to the gallon and around town came up four miles to the gallon. You know, I'm in my A8 right now with the catalyst in it. Debbie's driving and every time she moves her foot in the throttle, I can just feel this car accelerate. And without the catalyst, it doesn't do it. It, it almost seems like Audi has it drastically retarded to try to protect the drivetrain. But this 450 horsepower has really come to life with the catalyst. Yeah, I'm, I'm only at about 350 horsepower, but I got the 500 foot-pounds of torque. And uh, with that cat, with the catalyst in there, it's quieted up the idle. Oh, I forgot to mention, I got the diesel in my A8, by the way. Ooh, you got a diesel A8? Yes, it is a three-liter V6 turbo diesel. Wow. What year is this? It's a 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, they put the, the diesels were available in the A8 through 2016. And then the whole diesel gate thing came out and people panicked. But, yeah, uh amazing engine for the a8 uh i've uh i've i've got a buddy who's got the the four liter t turbo and uh i'll tell you we we launch off the line and i beat them across the intersection every time wow that's interesting i just had a guy this morning tell me his wife has a hyundai and it had hesitation problems and i gave him some catalyst and he said it fixed it almost instantly. Dr. Jane yeah. Gates had a guy down in North Carolina. He's got an older fire stroke. 
and it wouldn't idle. And he lives three miles from her. He's a contractor working on her house. And so she treated his fuel. He drove that Duramax three miles home, only three miles, and it's idling perfect. So he's now down there uh, distributing catalysts to all the local farmers. Nice. Yeah, I was a I was an Audi technician for 13 years, and so uh, I've been looking for one of these diesel A8s. They're not very popular in the states, but when I found one in good shape, I pounced on it. Wow. What What did you have to pay for it? Uh, so I picked it up. Uh, I bought it last year, and it had 40,000 miles on it, and I paid 30 for it. Oh, you did good. You ever well, find any more of that on the lot forever? <laughs> yeah. Ever find those? Call us and uh, we'll find homes for those. Yeah, they put that. Uh, it's the same V6 diesel that was available in the A6, the A7, and the Q5. Oh, that's awesome. Amazing tor- torquey little uh, torquey little engines. Um, and uh, it, it, from a standstill, if you you launch it, it, it'll it'll squeal all four tires off the line. That that thing, it's it's got more power than you need. Wow, that's good. But that's uh, good. yeah, clean, so this, cleaned up my emissions, and uh, I mean, because I put I've put thirty five thousand miles on that car in a year. I drive it everywhere. So and you still drive it a truck? Number. Yeah, I still drive a truck. Oh, so, uh, well, at the end of last year, uh, I took two months off work because I, I became an owner operator and I had, I took a two month vacation and I road tripped that Audi all across the country. I hit like 29 States and, uh, you could tell throughout the road trip by the time I got home, it was a different car from when I left. Cause I took a gallon of catalyst with me and in every tank it was going in there now i can now i can get about 40 miles to the gallon on highway with cruise control on at 70. wow that's awesome so with this a8 oh, yeah. that i have our overall average round town and on the road is is 22 or 24 miles to the gallon and uh and i'm i love how it runs and that harley davidson i put out the other day that 2011 cbo that I absolutely hated. I was running it the other day. I drove it for a couple hours with the catalyst in it. I just love that motorcycle now. Gotcha. Now, a couple, uh, several weeks back, y'all were talking about Audis and the oil consumption issue, um, and uh, that was something that we battled a lot when I was a uh, when I was at Audi. Um, it's very very common. The cause of it is. Uh, the piston rings, the gap is a little large because um, they, they had problems with their four-cylinder turbo engines when they closed up the gap to try to f- fix the uh, oil consumption issue. It was actually tearing up the cylinders because they're running too much cylinder pressure. Um, so the one thing that I've found over, because I've owned a dozen Audis throughout my life, if you put a catch can on there, because all your oil consumption is coming from compression going past the rings, and then it pushes all the oil through your crankcase ventilation valve, and it just burns it through the intake. Like, if you took your intake apart, you'd be amazed at how much oil buildup is in there. If you put a catch can on there, it will completely eliminate your oil consumption. Wow. Interesting. Okay, I wish they'd put a dipstick 
I hate going into the computer screen to see the oil level. <laughs> so I under the like hood, there there is a dipstick tube that'll have a little plastic cap in the end of it. There's no actual dipstick. You can go to Audi parts department and you can buy a dipstick, take that cap off and put it in there and have a dipstick. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to be there later this week. So that's good. Yeah. Hey, you know what uh, else they did on that 2013 AA that I have, it has 40,000 miles on it. There's a recall because they have a screen and a fitting on the turbo feed line. Are you familiar with that? Yes. They've gone yep. They've gone to a, a larger screen now or a screen that has larger holes in it. Why in the world do they even have that fitting in there? A friend of mine on an S7 uh, lost both turbos. Uh, so, so the purpose of the screen in the oil feed line of the turbo, as it was explained to me, is they want to break up the oil and aerate it. Uh, as it's going in there. Um, so if there's any chunks or sludge coming in there, it basically shreds it as it goes in and makes it and thins it up because um, the tolerances in the turbo are so tight. But what they were finding with the screen was too, t- too tight and people who were a little bit neglectful on our oil changes, they would lose a turbo over it. Oh, they uh, here's what the I screen. want you to do. Yeah. Well, I need you to call me tomorrow. I'll be in the office tomorrow. Please call me and give you give me your name and number because you know more than uh, any service manager that I've spoke with. Yeah, there's a there's a handful of us at, at my Audi dealership that I worked at for years. We had 34 techs. It's one of the largest Audi dealerships in the country, and uh, they used to fly me all over the place for training every year. I loved it. Um, but I was on, uh, there was about, there was about five of us. They called us the dream team and we loved the cars that nobody else could figure out. So, uh, but that's, uh, you know, I hear you guys and you guys kind of remind me of my little team back there at Audi's. Like, uh, I just kind of fell in, fell in love. I'm like, these guys know diesels like, uh, like, uh, our dream team knew Audi's. So, so where was the give dealer- you a call tomorrow in Bellevue, Washington? Oh, Okay, I've been there, but never at the auto dealer. All right, yeah, please call me tomorrow, sometime after 10 o'clock Eastern time. No problem. I can do that. All right. Sounds good. All right, good. I appreciate that. Thanks. Calls are rolling in. We're going to head to Kentucky. Randy, welcome to the program. Yes, sir. I've just been listening to your show, and I've listened uh, since March, and I'm up to August already. And I drive a company truck, but the company I drive for was bought out. And the company that bought us out drives nothing but Freightliners. And I have a really, really nice Volvo. And I ordered me some uh, catalyst yesterday because I want my truck to last a while so I don't have to drive a Freightliner. <laughs> and I was just wondering if there's anything else. Good. I, Good. You know, anything I can. I mean, I don't care to spend two or $300. But I'm not going to spend ten thousand. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. The year is your Volvo. It's a eighteen, a D. It's got a D, D thirteen in it. And how many? How many miles are on it? Five hundred and seventy-one thousand, and I put every one so, of them on. So, Randy, let me ask you this: 
what would cause, since this is a company truck, what would cause them to say, we need to replace this? Well, they have, they have about 3,000 trucks. It's quality carriers. And they're, they're just into nothing but Freightliners. Well, the, and the what, company I work for, they always bought us real nice Volvos. Yeah, what I'm asking, and when, and, you, when you start getting course, up into fleets with thousands of trucks, they usually have a very, very specific schedule of replacing trucks. Like they know before they buy the truck when they're going to replace it. In fact, there are many right, deals but, out but there. All, where, that, hold on, just let me finish because I, I, I want to know how we're going to know what we should be doing, if anything. There are deals out there where the deal when they buy the truck is the dealer's going to take it back at a certain point. It's not a lease. It, they own it, but it's all been prearranged. That's very common when you get up to big fleets. So what I don't want to see you do is spend money to try to extend the life on this truck if the fleet already knows when they're going to replace it. Well, they don't know because they ordered 700 Freightliners that could only get 100. So okay. they don't know nothing. And that is what has happened recently, and it screwed up fleet's replacement cycle. They just couldn't get trucks when they needed to replace theirs or when they were going to replace them. So the average life of a fleet truck right now has been extended quite a bit across the whole country. It's because you haven't been able to get enough trucks. Right, and, 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 and when they... When they put so many miles on a truck, they try to lease them out to, to, to people that want to lease trucks. And I'm not one of them. Right. But, okay. Uh, I'm not going to lease this truck no matter what. I'll drive a Freightliner first, but yeah, I, I would, yeah. I'd, like I say, I got the catalyst on the way. And I've been listening, y'all, and I want you to know this. I'm a company driver, and I used to be an owner-operator, but y'all got the most interesting show I ever listened to. Oh, matter of fact, you. I've got... Uh, it, it just, I just, I listen to it. That's all I listen to. <laughs> well, good, good. All right. So let, let's, uh, Bruce, go ahead and continue on with what uh, you were going to tell him there. I just, I just want to say to him, I appreciate that. And maybe we wanted, if he's keeping that truck, maybe we want to do the diesel force cleaning on it. Okay. How much does that cost? I'll let Pete with that one. Can we do the Volvo, Pete? No, we can't. And the reason no. is we don't have the software to uh, work the VG Turbo and the EGR valve, which needs to be done. And it's, it's not our software. Diesel Force doesn't have that software either. Hey, hey Pete, when, when, when we're Diesel Force through there, when if it is it that specific to the VGT? Could can you do the TC engine? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that, the, I don't know. Yeah, the the TC has a, has a you know basic turbo. Do that, or we could just do it by hand like we used to do it. You know, take the intake off, take the crossover piece off, take the EGR valve off, clean everything by hand. You know, we could do that as well. Yeah. Okay. You know, Randy, the, Run the catalyst for yeah, the catalyst. Absolutely. I'm because the, the one type of problem that would most likely make them get rid of this thing would be emission problems. 
So that's where I would focus, right, trying to thought. keep those emissions healthy. And the catalyst is absolutely the first step in that. Okay. I, I want to say something else about Bruce. I never, ever heard anybody say not to use your cruise control. Never. <laughs> I mean, our, uh, not, my truck's not set this way, but our company, they set their trucks up 65 on a pedal, 68 on cruise, which is crazy. But anyway... I never heard nobody say not to use the cruise. So I've been listening to y'all. And last week I tried with using just my foot and I can understand what Bruce is saying. And I, I, my mileage last week, believe it or not, I, I got 9.6 miles gone. Nice. Using my foot instead of the cruise. Excellent. Yeah. Looking at a turbo boost gauge and rolling easy in and out what? of the throttle. And uh, let the truck. I don't have a. I, I got some kind of gauge. I don't know what it is, but it goes like thirty pounds when I really crank it up. I guess that's a boost gauge. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then if you think like think a I roller coaster, answer. right? Think like a roller and coaster. I, a roller coaster doesn't have an engine, but yet it goes uphill, and it's all in all momentum. Right, one more thing. When, uh, there's a guy. is an owner operator. He's a lease operator. He leased one of our Volvos. And he told me he was using that stuff. That's the first, uh, we just was talking yesterday. He said, I use that stuff. I've been using it for a long time. And and I asked him what, what he noticed. He said, before I started using it, my exhaust pipes were clean. Now they're getting soot in them because the soot is coming out the exhaust. And then they should go back to so clean eventually too. Right, right. Then they'll eventually go back right, to clean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's, that kind of shows you that it's what's coming out of that, right? Yep. Yep. Well, I, I, I'll do, I'll use that catalyst and, and I really appreciate y'all show. I promise you. I, I wish I was an owner operator, but I'm 75 <laughs> years old. So I ain't about to buy no truck. <laughs> no, good for you. All right. Well, uh, great to talk to you. All right. Call in again soon. Yes, sir. Thank y'all. Okay. Wel- thank y'all so much. You're welcome. Let's go to Texas. Brian, welcome to the program. Hey, fellas. Um, hold on just a second here. Anyway, this is Brian. Um, I just got the turbo and the manifold put on that I ordered uh, a while back. I haven't got the OPS put on yet. Um, y'all can hear me, right? Yep, yep. Go ahead. Yeah, I could have called you the oh. other day, but I misplaced your number. I found it, and then I misplaced it. Go ahead. Oh, all right. Well, I'll, oh, you found it. Okay. You can call me anytime. Um, so I got a question. Speaking of the bridge engine, um, when we put the, you know, we put the Pittsburgh power, uh, you know, y'all, tu- we had the tune done first. Then we debridged it. We put the, the, um, Pittsburgh power, um, turbo on it without the wastegate. Right. So we yep. plugged, you know, we we plugged that little line in the side of the engine, right? But left everything right. until we until we put the new turbo on. That line that wraps all the way around the back of the engine and goes all the way back around to the housing behind the fuel pump. We removed that whenever we did this, and it was it was going to a little elbow that apparently was just siliconed in. So it came out. It, there's an opening there now, and I'm smelling fuel. Uh, just a faint smell of fuel. And I'm wondering, I, I, do I need to plug that or is it just air that's coming out of there? 
No, there's a plug. You know, we have I'm, a plug that goes in there. Pete, are you familiar with that pump? plug? So the, the plug that we need, so it, we need to put a plug in the cylinder head on the driver's that's side. Done. That's where the comes out. Okay, that's done. But it also then, that line went to the fuel filter head. Right. And, there was, and then I, I put a cap on that one, too. But I'm talking about the, the actual, there's a short line that comes from that housing that went up to the side of the block. Both of those ends are plugged. The one that came from the wastegate, though, and wrapped all the way around the engine, that one went into the top of the housing. And I need to know if I need to plug that. I would, I, I don't remember. I have to check with Brian in service. Um, he sees more of these than I do. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't okay, remember. I, for that. Brian, just I call Brian. Brian. Yeah. Oh, you're telling me to call Brian? Okay. Yeah. Call Brian, yeah. our service manager. Okay. That sounds Pete. good. And then, yeah. Pete and I haven't worked in the shop for a long time. Oh yeah, I know. I, I I just I know if y'all don't have the answers, though, we can get them. So between everybody, that's you know. There you go. So that's why I called. All right. But um, yeah. Thank you very much. I'll I'll do that. And Bruce, feel free to call me. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Let's uh, let's go to Kansas. Bob, welcome to the program. Yeah. Hey guys, I. I was just calling again. I heard the guy about the 12.7, and I have a, I don't have a 12.7. I have a 14-liter Detroit, and it's a non-EGR, and it does the same thing that he was talking about. Anytime you put it into, a like, a coast situation where you, they're coasting down a hill in cooler weather, and you're losing altitude or gaining it rapidly, and you go to roll back into your throttle, you will get this major backfire. Like during the summer, it hardly ever does it. I mean, almost never does it in the heat. But when the like it's starting to cool down and you get into a cool situation where you've been working it a little bit and then you start coasting down a hill or like that guy was talking about, he went through some road construction and you go to just pick up the throttle just barely you're just like trying to take the slack out of the drive line you know just that kind of and then you get this loading up of fuel and then you'll get it if you you'll kind of almost not hear it but it it's as the more fuel you give it then you'll get the backfire and you know you get this huge amount of smoke like white smokes and and it you know in the truck like him you think the truck is done, you know, you'll like pull over and, oh my God, I blew it up, but you let it idle for a little bit and it'll take off and run perfectly fine again. And I, I have recently sent my EC, ECM to you guys to have you take a look at it. You have one of them right now. And I, I, I don't know if you see anything that we can do to help us out. I, I know other guys that have this exact same problem with their Detroit and it's, it's something out there. And I love my Detroit. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but this little thing is 
super annoying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's just the uh, when it goes into the filter torque part of the algorithm inside the ECM, it backs all the timing off, and that's what makes it stutter. So now all the ones that we do, we set the minimum to something reasonable versus some sort of negative number. I think it could go to negative five. Now I don't think we let it go below five. So just changing that little bit in the program uh, gets rid of all that weird backfire burble stuff we've done a whole bunch now, i was just curious that guy said that he had changed his motor i had i had bought my 14 liter from a company called american i think american motors or something like that they are a, you know a detroit exclusively rebuilder and i was just kind of curious what his his was and did he say he said, I didn't know. He said it was a detroit remand this was a Detroit. Well, I don't know. I mean, if if anything, if you guys ever find anything about it, I would love to hear the solution. But maybe it is the timing. It is. It does. But it seems like it's when you're losing or gaining altitude in cool weather is when it really wants to do it bad or consistently. But it's crazy. If I if I go up to the mountains or if I go up to Wyoming. And I run my truck in a while. It'll just about seven thousand feet. It'll just do it almost in between every shift. And then if and then I run down to Texas and I get into some heat. It, you cannot make it do it in Texas. I, and so I just don't know if altitude has anything to do with it or not. But it, uh, I haven't heard that part of the story. Like I said, the. Uh so the ones that I rode around with here, um, we can make it go away. And then they'd never say anything about altitude, but maybe yours is a different thing than what theirs is. But if that's your ECM, we'll make that change and then let us know if it does it again or not. You know, I had a okay. weird altitude yeah, we'll issue on one of my Series 60s, one of the gliders I built. I, I thought at first it was because it always happened at the end of a long pull. And... It was pretty consistent, and I was running out west a lot then, so I had a lot of long pulls. And I, I still don't know if it was the long pull or the altitude, but it turned out to be a cam sensor was the problem. But what would happen is after a long pull or at that altitude, it was like somebody turned off the key for a second. Everything went dead. Lights disappeared, gauges all dropped back to zero, engine quit. And it would pick right back up. It would be a second or two. But it would do that, like, right at the top of a long pull, over and over and over. It turned out to be a cam sensor. That's interesting. Yeah, I, don't, I, I couldn't figure hey, out. My, Kevin, Kevin uh, go ahead. I had a question. I mean, this is kind of different, but I... I do a lot of heavy haul stuff. Like I have a 12 axle that I pull and, you know, we pull like 225,000, you know, we'll yeah. be grossing 225,000. Yeah. And I, I generally only run about 60 miles an hour, you know, empty going home and stuff. And I'm still about 90,000 pounds when I'm empty. And what I was wanting to do was, uh, what, you know, you guys always are talking about gearing your rear ends, you know, up pretty high. And, I have three nineties in mind 
and I don't dare go much, you know, higher. I won't oh, for startability right. reasons and stuff right. like that. But but I was wondering about a second transmission. Do you lose too much, you wait, know, wait, wait. power through the second transmission? <clears throat> Instead of two transmissions, wouldn't we be better off with two speed differentials? Now we need that. You, yeah, but no, that, you, I, wait, you're I, right. I, Hold I, up. Yeah, we need that. Oh, well, we could use. I don't know how that would work. I don't know. I, you know, here's the thing. I mean, that I, would be I, the thing. That's that's what all heavy haulers do is the uh, the two speed variant. Right. And that's that's I, what I, I've it always. It is super known. expensive. I've looked into it. Well, I can't imagine the transmission is any cheaper, is it? I don't know. I don't know. And I just never heard anybody talk about it. And I just, you know, my dad used to drive trucks with two transmissions in them. And I was just curious why nobody you, does that. So it must be a thing. Well, you know what I would think? Well, honestly, with- I, I Really, if I were you, if the 390s are working and I, I did an operation like this 11 axle for about six months with a partner way, way back when. My God, is that a complicated operation to run? It, but the money's incredible. At the time, the the damn pilot cars got paid more than most of my other trucks did. Um, there's just a lot of money moving that kind of stuff. So honestly, if it's a fuel economy thing, who cares? And how often do you hear me say that? Um, this would be. I, I just think it's going to get too complicated to try to change the gearing across a, uh, you know, a span like that with this kind of weight. I, I just think it could be done, but it's going to be expensive. It's going to be complicated. And I'm just not sure it's worth it. You know, but it's, you, you, you're always talking about running the transmission. Like I got an 18 speed and we're always talking about trying to catch that gear that where you're not in overdrive. And that's one reason I was wanting to gear up just a little bit higher so I could pull about 60 mile an hour when I'm still, cause it's a double over. And so if I could just pull in direct, because I noticed that this truck could pull so much better if I can hang in direct, but at indirect and that gear, I'm topped out about maybe 55 miles an hour. And if I just had a so, little bit more, I could keep my RPMs and pull these heavy loads and I can stay like in that 1100 to 1200 RPM. But, Pulling pretty the, heavy at that. The, the, the challenge we come up with, we can make this work at highway speeds. We can absolutely make this. And I would be looking at a single overdrive 18 speed. And we could probably gear this to work at highway speeds. It's the startability. I would really oh. have to sit down and get out the calculator. You're talking about over 200,000 pounds. Startability is going to be an issue. And, and that's where we'd have to sit down oh, and start going through all the options to try to figure it out. You know, if we could figure out a way to do it with just a, a transmission and differentials, but even then think about it, you're probably talking about 15 to 20 grand to get that all done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's 15 to 20 to change my rear ends to two speed. Right. Right. I, I seen a three-speed transmission that would that goes behind the transmission 
and it just gives you, you know, a super low and then a direct and then a high. You may be on to something. It, it's just not something I've ever spent any time with. I'd have to go research it. But if there is a, a simple three-speed box that you just put behind the transmission, that might work. We would see four-speed and five-speed auxiliaries years ago. That was fairly common, but I don't think they had a good torque rating. They couldn't handle a lot of torque that the modern engines have nowadays compared to what was out there. That's another consideration. They were 1,200 foot-pounds. Ooh. They were 1,200 foot-pounds. And you you didn't have – so if you had a six and a four, you didn't really have 24 speeds. There was a lot of overlap in gears. You still only had – 17 or 18 speeds. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and he's solving any, you know, here's that route. Here's the crazy part about this. We're trying to solve this problem with all these complicated scenarios. And all they would have to do is give us a damn low creeper gear in a reverse. And we'd be all set. We've been asking for that free Volvo yeah. finally did it in their 14 speed. That is an awesome transmission. That's what we've been asking for for years. Can so I get can a, solve problems can I, like this? Is there any way you can buy a Volvo transmission with the Creeper gear in it? Well, you could buy the transmission, um, Leroy. The, these are the, the automatic. Yeah, right. These are those. The you automatic. Know, is there any way to make that yeah, transmission don't work? I, I can't. don't even say Leroy. You just <laughs> no. That's, no. Uh, Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is it possible? I don't know. I'd have to go look at that transmission. Is it possible to just take all the electronics off of it? And now we'd have to have a shift tower of some, well, I don't know. I mean, it's possible to do anything. It'd be possible to make it work too, but (laughs) is it just, does it make sense to do that? Right. Right. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. That's right. No, I appreciate you guys' time. Do you guys ever come up anything on the, this Detroit thing, it, uh, I would love to find out what what is going on. But maybe you're, maybe it is the retard. And I guess uh, the you know when I get my ECM back, I I will I will hopefully that will solve the problem. All right. You know, yeah. My good friend Mike Lane. Mike Mike Lane lives in Ogden, Utah, and he runs all the mountains out there. And he's never once complained to me. And we talk at least twice a week and he's my snowmobile companion and he's got a, a non EGR 14 liter and he's, he doesn't have that issue. Hmm. Mike, if you're listening to the show, please call us and tell, tell us if you are or aren't having that. Got it. All right. We're going to head to Wisconsin. Jim, welcome to the program. How are you doing guys? I got a, probably a quick battery question for you. I got a 2019 Freightliner Cascadia. February, I had all four batteries replaced because number two and number four, number two was bad, gone, and number four was going. So I had all of them replaced. Then in June, number two was bad. It was running 160, 170 degrees, and it was bad. You could smell it. So they only had one. So we replaced that. This week, 
number two is going bad again. Now, I was told that the APU and the alternator on the truck are wired to number two for charging. With the is it just bad batteries? So you're saying that um, the APU and alternator are wired to number two, and that's the battery that keeps going bad. Yes. Okay. Um, that shouldn't be any sort of issue because, I mean, that's how it's pretty much works on everything else. I'm not sure why just one of yours keeps acting up. You know what I mean? Hey, Leroy, is it possible that we've just got a problem, a short something on that circuit? That or or is there something with the APU pulling too much power? Or I mean, it well, seems pretty I weird mean, that the, the same battery. battery I, yeah, yeah, all the batteries are should the system should see it as just one big twelve volt battery. So I don't know why it would just be with one battery unless you're having connection issues to the other batteries, and it's they're, mostly pulling from just one battery. Yeah, they're not using any kind of an isolator, are they? Not that I know of, no. Now, normally the alternator voltage while it's charging will go up to 14, 14, 2. That's perfect. And since number two is bad, well, since number two is bad, it only gets to 13, 2, 13, 3. And then as soon as you put a new battery in it, it goes back up to the correct range up closer to 14? Yes. Yes. And that's normal, but the problem, yeah. the question is, why does that one battery keep going bad? I mean, everything else is acting the way you would expect right. it to act, <laughs> but why is the one battery going bad over and over? Yes. The only thing I can speculate is there's some sort of connection issues with the other batteries. Like, it's, it's pulling from one battery more than the other, or it's charging more than the other ones. That's the only thing I can really mm. think of, because everything else is wired that way, so... I can't believe that, you know, it would just be one battery that's over and over. Yeah, it might be time to just pull all the connectors off all the batteries and check and replace and clean and tighten and see what happens. Well, they they did that because Freightliner for 2019 had a recall on two of the uh, cables in there. So that was done... <laughs> That was done, I think, this year. Yeah. Well, that that may yeah. be part of a clue that they had a problem already. Yeah. But the cabling was changed. Well, I got a. I'm going to stop at a TA up here in New New York and see if they can. Put a battery in, and we'll pull all the hey. cables off again and look at them. I, I know this sounds stupid, but sometimes when you have weird issues, one of my troubleshooting techniques is try weird stuff. What if you switch that connection from the second battery to the third? That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, just, just put That's it on it, another yeah. battery and see what happens. Okay. Yeah, when I replace the battery, I'll do that i'll change the connection yeah see what happens 
All right. Sounds good, guys. Thanks. You're welcome. Let's head off to Colorado. Mike, welcome to the program. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, just want to second what that uh, gentleman that identified as 75 years old said earlier. Love love what you do. Appreciate it. And uh, don't ever quit doing this show. I'll cry if you do. But anyway, uh, quick quick uh specking question for you um you said something earlier got me thinking and uh kevin you may recall me i was just on your show the other day we had a rather long phone call and i'm i'm gonna go to 253 gears in my rear end right now i have 336s it's a freightliner cascadia 15 engine with a 10 speed single overdrive but no my question is ultimately my goal is to uh I converted my 24.5 wheels to 22s, but I've got 11R tires right now, and I, I want to go to the low pro tires. Instead of going 253 gears, here's the real question. Should I maybe, since I'm thinking about going to 22.5s, maybe the next time I rotate, uh, replace the tires, should I go to like a 247 or in instead of 253 or uh, it looks like doing the 253s from where I'm at, I'm going to lose about two miles an hour. I mean, one mile an hour, which is fine. I'm not worried about that. But then doing the tires, it looks like I'll lose another two miles an hour. And I'm wondering if the 247 gears would offset that. You know, here's the thing. It, when we talk about, you know, some of these really close um, gear ratios, it's really difficult to know exactly which one's going to be better. But if you're changing anyway, then it would, and it sounds like you've already done the calculations that, you know, you've got your speed you want, you've got your RPM you want. And in that case, yeah, if there's a better gear you could choose, I, I would choose it. There, there's so little difference in, in those two ratios. I'm not sure what happened, but I'm just getting a ton of background noise. Um, that's what it is. It's the caller's line. Um, Mike, I'm not sure where you are, but it just got really noisy. It's, uh, I hear that, too, but it's not me. That music isn't coming out of my throat. <laughs> oh, that's right. Everybody's on the same line. I forgot. It's somebody. Uh, Bruce, are you someplace really noisy? Well, I just walked into Cracker Barrel. And that was you. Gone. Yeah, that was you then. Yeah. Hey, hey Bruce, you're going to have to. Yeah. It's, I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Okay. We'll talk to you then. Thanks. Enjoy your breakfast. Um, <clears throat> all right. Um, Mike, yeah. Yeah, in this case, look, if you had the 253s, there's no way we'd ever change them to the other ratio, 247 or whichever one you're looking at. But if you're changing the right. gears, and yeah, it, it, it sounds like you've done the math and the 247 does make more sense. Um, yeah, you know, I was just using those uh, online calculators yeah, Dana Spicer has, and, yep. you know, you put four inputs and it tells you what speed you'll go, and... Uh, I was just um, thinking if I'm going to, if the end state is the 22.5 low pros, maybe go just a little bit lower on I, that ratio and then uh, yeah. kind of keep the same that speed makes sense. top end I have now or something close to it. Yeah, that makes okay, sense. Okay, and now, then uh, another now here's the other wrote, thing I could say. Go, go ahead. So you sat down and you did exactly what you should do. You get the calculator, you go, here's the speed I want. 
Here's the target RPM I'm looking for. Here's the gear that gets me closest. That's perfect. What I don't know, and I'm not sure that anybody knows, is which one is better. Would the 253s, it would give us a different RPM than what you're targeting. Would it be better or worse? I I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. There's there's not enough difference there. And I was kind of wondering if the, uh, you know, if there was a reason Joel said 253, maybe you you start going any more than that on my setup and you start running into startability issues at the other end of the scale. But I I wouldn't think so because I have a granny gear first gear on this tranny. Now, this this isn't, and even if you didn't have that gear, this isn't enough of a a difference that I'd be all that worried about startability. We have a lot of fudge room and startability just like we do with everything else. You know, we don't worry about putting... 1,800 foot-pounds of torque through a transmission that's rated for 15. We know we can get away with it. We don't worry about running a 20,000-pound differential as a single axle when, you know, you're supposed to run a 23,000-pound. So all those limits, you know, we can fudge those a lot and get away with it without any problems. Same thing with startability. Sometimes we calculate startability and it's outside of the range. But you look at it and you go, eh, it's not that far outside of the range. A good driver won't have a problem with this. Right, right. You just ease into it. Yeah. Okay, and then one more question. On the engine, um, I, I, I hear, and I've done a little Googling and kind of picked up on some of this. But, uh, Joe was talking about the different iterations of the DD15 engine. I don't know where mine falls, and I haven't called Detroit yet. But when I look online, I only see two torque curves that they're publishing and advertising for the DD15. There's there's one, which I assumed was my engine, which was built in 2012. And then there's the downsped engines, which are, is a whole different, you know, and I think a fairly recent thing they've been doing. And I'm just wondering, uh, is, you know, my engine, it, it, my torque curve, I believe, is uh, 975. I reach peak torque and I hold it all the way to like 15, 1550 maybe 1500. Um, and they, you know, they brag about that in their advertising. We got a long, a broad torque curve and that's great. So especially since I'm going to go to running direct and, um, I don't have a damp sped engine. I don't think you would say that it's not a gen five engine. And yet it says it has peak torque at 975. I mean, can I drag that thing down to 1100, a thousand RPMs? And as long as Again, it's not starting to shake like it's going to take off. You know, am I going to be all right? And, you know, I, I do that. I feather the throttle. To, when things start not seeming right, back off it, you know, and that's what I do. So it sounds like I can use my engine that way, but I just wanted to hear what you guys think about it because I'm not all that experienced with drivers. So I want to make sure I don't screw it up. You know, I don't, so, at a, at I don't a, know about the down. Oh, go ahead, Leroy. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't know about the downsped engines, but I know that Cummins on their, their documentation says that you can run an engine at peak torque for 30 seconds. So I imagine the downsped engine is, is designed to run at peak torque. But what I tell everybody is, you know, if your peak torque's at 975 or 1100, you can run it down there for a little bit, uh, but just like not under full load. Um, but you really shouldn't be under full load if you're just, you know, going down the highway and you're trying to get fuel mileage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, yeah, Cummins, gotcha. 
Cummins architecture is not good for downspeeding. I mean, that that is one of the big issues going forward. Really, Cummins should go back to the drawing board um, because their architecture is, is just never going to be able to do the kind of things we're doing today. The DD-15 isn't right. quite to the Volvo level. Now, the new ones are getting closer. Uh, you said yours is a 12? Yeah, it was. it's a 13-year model truck, but it came off the production line in August of 2012, so I'm saying the engine was I, built in 12. You know, I, I think on that engine you are completely safe at 1,100. I would not expect this thing okay. to run down at that 975, even though that's where the torque kicks in. Um, 1,100 is safe. I'd have to go do a little digging to see if it, you'd be able to get down closer to 1,000 or so. Um, what is your, what okay. is, if you go with the 253s and your cruise speed right now, where's your RPM going to be? Uh, I, I would be at 59.99 miles an hour at 1250 RPMs. Yeah, there's no problem. Which is a real I, comfortable place for my engine. Exactly. Yeah. I don't see and a problem I was, what, what I was contemplating, I was contemplating maybe bumping that 59 up a mile or two. And then, and then especially to offset when I put the low pro tires on and maybe be able to go 62, 63 miles an hour at 1250 and then, you know, be able to pull down a little on a hill and, and hold it, it without even having to make the shift. Yeah, 1250, you're safe all day. You could let it pull down to 1100 probably and still not have an issue. I, I, I don't think I'd go any lower than okay. that on that engine. But at 1250, you know, you start cruising too low and you start, you actually lose fuel economy, don't you? You can. And uh, what yeah, I was right. wondering about, there's that, there's that whole thing about piston speed and keeping your exhaust gas temperatures kind of up a little bit to burn clean. And I, that's, that ties into this question, too. I'm wondering to maintain this old, early design, crappy emission system on my truck. Can, is running at 1250 or 12 going to be kind of a good thing for that? Yeah, it, it, that's really not a bad emission system. It, it's really not. Though, though we were starting to get things figured out with the catalyst and we take care of them and, you know, they do okay. I, I don't think you're seeing any issues at 1250, no. And that's where you're going to be spending most of okay. your time. Okay, that's great. Well, that's all I had. I appreciate it. Uh, you guys are just, uh, say it again, you're just gold what you're doing here. So <laughs> you're you're thank welcome. You. Thanks for the call. Thank you much. Hey, you know, I, I see a problem today. Um, none of us are going to be able to go home because we're not going to be out, get out the door because our heads are going to be too big if people keep talking like that. We're, uh, we're going to go to Iowa. Matt, welcome to the program. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. What's on uh, your mind today? Well, now the last three three calls I have comments on. Uh, <clears throat> this last guy, they had a 253 with 22.5 low pros and 12.50. He's at 57.5 miles an hour. Okay. With the 247, he'd be at 59. So we're about a mile and a half an hour difference between the two gears. And if he wants to run 60, I, I would recommend the 247. And that is about the lowest number, highest gear we can go in traditional transmissions before we need to worry about startability. Yeah, 
Okay, that sounds about right. That that's really oh, close. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if he wants to run sixty, I, I would you know considering he's at the point he can choose either one. Exactly. I right. would go with the two forty seven for his own. Got it. His electrical issue, I think you guys are spot on. Um, I would be looking at the cables like he's not getting to charge the cables in between the batteries. Like there's no electrical flow between them. And then absolutely switch from having it all hooked to one battery, spread it out to opposite ends. I've got my APU hooked to one end and my alternator cable to the opposite end of the battery thing. Oh, there you go. positive and negative. That way... The electric is making it flow through the whole system instead of all in one spot. That's yeah, just good thinking. I guess opinion. I can't give no, that, any that, scientific reason to that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, the guy, the heavy haul guy, was talking about two transmissions. If we go back to the old twin sticks. That that was kind of before we had our I don't know what you call it the multifunction transmissions with our the auxiliary box is in the new transmission so instead of actually having two separate boxes they kind of married them together yeah you're right with the back box on right. the nine thirteen speed so I don't think going backwards. I mean, he's probably talking to a newer transmission. This auxiliary box you could add to the back. Right now, I I don't have any experience and don't know nothing about them. I really think in his situation, to research the two-speed rear end makes a lot more sense. Because then he could get a really low gear for startability. And then go to a higher... And I know there's limits. You can only get certain combinations. You can't pick and choose what it, you want there, but it, it sounds like he um, has researched it and it would solve his problem. But he was saying it would be like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to do it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I might. I missed some of that call when, yeah, when Angie yeah, picked up there. So it, 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 I didn't I, hear it all. But. When we talked, when I said, "Well, look, you, you, to solve this, you're really going to have to change the transmission and the differentials," and I said, "It's going to cost you fifteen to twenty thousand. It, it's probably not worth it." And he said. That's right around the price that the two-speed differentials were going to cost him. Yeah, and that that was any of that older technology and transmission. You're really, really got to watch your torque ratings. Some of them are really low. There. Yeah, some of them are really low. Oh yeah, there was, you know, twelve and thirteen hundred is right. fourteen hundred was the top end. Yeah, way back then. Yeah. Um, Yeah, well, I think there was one more, but I already forgot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will cut you loose. Uh, anybody have anything they want to wrap up with today? Well, you know, on the two-speed rear ends, I've only seen a few trucks that had them, and you can almost find no information on them, like on the Internet, like what ratios are offered. Right. You know, right. a 370 and three liter, um, there's just nothing out there on them. I'm surprised they make sense. You to, know, to in, use them. in an operation like that, over 200,000 pounds, they make a ton of sense. They really do. I'm shocked you don't see more of them in the heavy haul world. 
I mean, that's about the only place you do see them, but you don't see them very often. And you're right. Trying to find any information is next to impossible. So where I would see them years ago when I worked in a shop, the big cams were uh, a lot of logging trucks had them. Yeah. And the reason for that was they were off road. Uh, and yeah, winter in the woods, but because logging had changed where now they're on a highway for a hundred miles to the sawmill, they need to um, go faster. Right. So they would have that option. Yeah. So that's the same time I've seen it to recall seeing it. It was like in a logging truck. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that in this case, Every solution we've come up with is complicated and expensive. There, there just isn't a good, simple, yes. and, and with the downside to almost all of them, I think he's doing fine right now. I would leave this truck alone. I wouldn't put any money into trying to modify this truck. And when he goes to buy another truck to do this, there are options now. We could gear a, a, yeah. a truck with the Volvo 14 speed is a really good transmission for something like this. And I, I think we're going to start seeing more of those options from the other manufacturers too. So you're not going to be locked into just Volvo. I don't think, um, I think Freightliner will be the next where we start to see, um, better transmission options as they're now starting to focus on that down speeding. So did you say he had an 18 speed? Transmission? He did the heavy yeah. haul guy. Yeah. Yeah, it was an 18-speed. This low is pretty low. It's, it's okay. It, they're, they're not as deep as most people think. I've been through all the 18-speeds. It almost seems to me like there might be a 15-speed that's better. Um, but they, there, there aren't as many really good options on the 18-speeds for that really low gear as you would think. Nowhere near what the 14-speed Volvo transmission has. Not even close. Hmm. Yeah. So, I, like I Makes said, I think th- I made a, a... Go ahead. I was going to say, I made, a, I made a spreadsheet recently that you can plug in like a torque curve and like all the transmission gear ratios and tire size and everything. And it tells you like, how much torque you have at the wheels at every gear, what speed it is at every gear. And then you can overlay a graph and see like when your best shift points are and nice. things like that. It makes it a lot easier to answer, would answer a lot of these questions. Cause it's like, well, what's, what's the difference if I put, you know, this gear in, well, okay, well it's about two miles an hour and about like 400 foot pounds of butt. Yeah. Now that's an awesome or whatever spreadsheet. Yeah. I should probably put that on the website. You should. That would be Makes awesome. Nice. Yeah, throw that into resources. Um, yeah, I, I just think in this case, I'd leave this truck alone. Um, solve this problem the next time you spec a truck. You have a lot more options now. All right, with that, yeah, uh, we are going to wrap this up today. Uh, I'm going to cut the Pittsburgh power guys loose. Thanks, guys, as always. We'll see you again next week. And uh, just to wrap this up real quick, um, I've got a couple things coming up this week. I am really going to try hard today or tomorrow to get a couple of recorded shows done. Uh, I've got an episode of The Pit I want to record, and uh, I have another episode. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. I want to get that recorded. Um, I've got a 
trip coming up and a speaking engagement, but I don't think... I might end up missing a couple days of the shows. We're going to try to see if we can uh, still have the shows go without me. Not sure if I'm going to be able to pull that off or not. Uh, I'll keep you updated on that. And one other thing to update you on, uh, if you haven't been to the store in a while, Let's Truck, letstruck.com is our store. Uh, You really should. We have some awesome new stuff over there. Lots of great food for you and your furry friends as well. We have a new line of uh, dog food and snacks and all kinds of great stuff. Really, really healthy, high-quality stuff for your pets and for you. And it seems like every week we're bringing something new into the store. So uh, head on over there, letstruck.com. We do appreciate it. That's how we support all of this. You know, we had a lot of really uh, excellent compliments on the show today. Uh, We spent a lot of time on this. Today was uh, two full hours, no breaks. Um, That's how we support all of this. We we do it through our store. It's a win-win for everybody. So uh, we really appreciate it when you support us at the store. Uh, The more you support us there, the more we'll do this. We have more ideas for shows. We have more ideas for a lot of things. And uh, it all comes down to money. So help us out and we'll help you out. Letstruck.com. We will see you back here tomorrow. We have an excellent guest tomorrow coming up for Destination Health. Uh, She's returning, Alana Collin. She wrote the book 10% Human. Um, On the website Healthy Tribe, we've got a, uh, a lot of conversations going on about are probiotics necessary um, for a human being, on a carnivore diet especially. You know, we're not getting any prebiotics per se on a, a um, carnivore diet. We're not getting any real probiotics uh, on a carnivore diet. Now, that's why I came up with fermented carnivore. And But there's an argument. Um, Dr. Saladino pretty much says that We don't need probiotics. I have a different approach on this, and I'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, So join us, and we're going to have one of the experts on gut bacteria to help us out with that so we can ask her a lot of these questions and get her opinion as well. We will see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.